meet the author at the National Archives online. In this talk, Trevor Barnes discusses his book, Dead Doubles. The talk was recorded in October 2020. series at the National Archives online. I'm really pleased to see so many people here tonight and I'm sure that is a um, tribute to the quality of the two um, speakers that we have. We have Trevor Barnes, journalist and noted author of our featured book Dead Doubles and he will be in conversation with Professor Christopher Andrew, Professor Emeritus at Cambridge and a specialist in the history of the intelligence um, studies. Okay, so with no further ado, I will pass across to, to Christopher. Thank you. Uh, uh, thank you very much. Um, well, Trevor Barnes' uh, new book is a wonderful example of the unexpected secrets waiting to be discovered uh, in the National Archives. And of course, Trevor not really has discovered some extremely interesting ones. But he's then done what a lot of people who discover really interesting uh, topics about the Cold War don't do. That's to say he's been to Moscow, which is unusual. He's been to the United States, which is very unusual and barely believable. He's also been to Dorset. Uh, so um, uh, this, what we shall hear from Dorset uh, surprised me and I believe will uh, uh, sur surprise you. So. It's no wonder that Trevor has already been interviewed on the Today programme, although he's left the best for tonight, uh, that he's appeared prominently on the newspapers of the Times, the Telegraphs and other uh, newspapers of, uh, of record. So let's begin at the beginning. And the beginning, of course, is the cover. Trevor, before we go inside your book and look at the secrets that you have ruthlessly extracted from intelligence agencies in East and West, let's begin with the title. The title is Dead Doubles, and the cover shows probably the most famous of all dead doubles to operate in England in general, and certainly in Dorset in particular. So what is a dead double? A dead double, Chris, is the name which is generally given to a particularly Russian illegal who takes on the identity of another dead person. The KGB specialised in trawling various cemeteries around the world for the identities of young people who died in their infancy or uh, early adolescence and then taking their identities um, and working up an alternative what was called a legend for their illegal agent to adopt. So um, this technique was put for example by Frederick Forsyth in the um, Day of the Jackal and was used by his assassin but it was particularly a speciality of the KGB. And so what they would do is literally tombstone, as I said, these cemeteries. And it plays a role in this particular story because multifaceted though it is, one aspect was how um, two of the spies got their false passports. We'll talk about those in a moment. And indeed, that was a classic example of a dead person whose identity was or two dead people whose identity was taken uh, and adopted by the KGB for a couple of their illegal agents. Just by way of background, the Russians traditionally have had two types of agents, illegals and legals. Legals are the majority of their officers who operate out of embassies and so have benefit of diplomatic status. But illegals are the ones who, as I said, adopt a completely different personality. They forego, they erase their past, take on a new identity, and they are illegal, deep cover people who um, are in some ways regarded by the Russians as their special treasure, because of course they're less likely to attract the attention of the domestic intelligence services. Well, uh, this particular illegal has attracted and continues to attract the favorable attention of, amongst others, Vladimir Putin. Uh, so even though there is absolutely no reason to believe that Putin's uh, secret service is anywhere near as good as the one that you've been studying, what has Putin said about your particular dead double? Well, one of the five spies who made up the Portland spy ring 
went by the name when he was operating in Britain of Gordon Lonsdale. He was masquerading as a Canadian businessman selling jukeboxes of all things. And his real name emerged only after he'd been arrested and there'd been a trial. And MI5 had sleuthed um, his real name out to be Conon Trofimovich Molody. And he has been described by Vladimir Putin um, only very recently in 2017 as a legend, a sort of legend upon which is based the whole reputation and mystique, one might say, of the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, and in particular of their illegal service. So we may come back to this uh, later, but I think some comparison between the extraordinary sophistication of the Russian illegals that you've lecture and the kind of people they nowadays send to Salisbury um, is very much, I think, to the advantage of your period when also uh, they didn't assassinate people, at least in England. So uh, very briefly then, we've got, to, we've identified who the dead double is, or rather you have done. Um, he's Conan Molody, and uh, he manages to take the identity of the Canadian uh, Gordon Lonsdale. So he's in Britain. What are these secrets that he's after? Where is he intending to get them from? And how important are they? Well, the focus of Conan Molody's attentions was the top secret underwater research establishment Britain had in 1960-61. I mean, it's very important, I think, to set this story in context. I mean, as L.P. Hartley famously said, the past is another country. They do things differently there. And although we're talking about Britain only 60 years ago, in many, many ways, it was so different. I mean, first of all, we were right in the midst of the coldest period of the Cold War with massive stockpiles of nuclear weapons, both east and west. The Iron Curtain had been established, but hadn't actually taken concrete form, as it was only to do in 1961, when Berlin was scarred by the building of the Berlin Wall. That was only in 1961. Back in Britain, Britain was at this interesting turning point. We were coming out of the period of really genuine austerity after World War II. The cultural tectonic plates were just starting to shift. The Beatles in 1960 had just finished and were doing their first exile in Hamburg, and they returned to give this amazing concert up in Liverpool at the end of 1960 that was meant to have founded Beatlemania. So it was very, very different, obviously very differential society. And it was in this society that the Portland spiraling took place. And also, back in 1960, believe it or not, Britain had the world's third largest navy. And we also were building our first nuclear submarine. And this first nuclear submarine was called Dreadnought. And again, also, though it may seem a little hard to believe for us uh, modern Brits in 2020, Britain in many, many areas was right at the leading edge of technology. And in this underwater detection establishment down in Portland, the Brits had developed a world-beating sonar for that nuclear submarine. And if you then tie this to the fact that the Russians had just appointed this relatively young admiral of the fleet called Gorshkov, and he'd been tasked by Khrushchev, the Russian leader, to develop and expand and burgeon the Russian submarine fleet into a world-leading force. You could see why Russia really was interested in the best and important secrets to be found in Portland. And it was there indeed that they had a couple of British agents. One was called Harry Houghton and the other one was his mistress called Ethel G. Okay, well, uh, let's, uh, let's uh, move on to them. But uh, first to repeat the important point that he'd made, that we really did in those days have secrets that were really worth stealing. Uh, now, of course, none of us know what naval secrets are now, but uh, our Navy is a fraction of the size that it was then. So we need to put ourselves back into a period when Britain didn't quite rule the waves, but had done so within living memory. Okay, now they're two very improbable people who managed to get these secrets in the general direction of uh, uh, the, uh, the KGB. And um, you've told us um, uh, about them. Uh, so tell us a bit more about um, how these improbable people who don't look absolutely top class nonetheless managed to get hold of top class secrets. Well, Harry Houghton was a very interesting spy. And after his arrest, Conor Molody um, rubbished him pretty comprehensively in terms of his incompetence. 
And he first came to the attention of MI5 at the very beginning of 1960. And one of the first things I discovered from the archives, um, I must say I absolutely loved going through these wonderful um, files that the archives have, and also their staff are, are incredibly helpful in terms of you know, getting out the files and giving you background information, was the first thing I found out was that Harry Houghton came to the attention of MI5 beginning of 1960 because there was an anti-Semitic letter that was sent to a man at the underwater detection establishment at Portland. Now, understandably, he was distressed and he said, I think this letter has come from a man who works here as a clerk called Harry Houghton. And this in itself would not have been of any interest for MI5, but something else the man said was of interest. And this was that this man said that Four years before, in 1956, Harry Houghton, who'd been working at the UDE, as it was known, since his return from Poland, where he'd worked in the naval attaché's office in Warsaw. Back in 1956, this man said that Houghton had been accused and investigated for taking secret files out of the strong room without permission. Now, it was this that raised the interest of MI5. And... This then, in turn, led to them starting in a half-hearted way an investigation. But the KV files, because that's the name of the MI5 files, as you know only too well, Chris, which are all the MI5 personnel files of Houghton, revealed that suddenly, in April 1960, this investigation that was frankly just tiptoeing along, not really making any progress at all, jolted to light speed. And the reason for this was that there was information from the CIA the CIA, it turned out, had an agent, and this whole Portland story is just remarkably international in terms of its scope. The CIA had a top secret agent whose um, code name was Sniper, and he'd been feeding information to the CIA, incredibly valuable information for a couple of years. And then at the end of April 1960, he said, I am giving you some really important information that there is a spy operating in the Admiralty at the moment. His name, I don't know. It's something like Hupkenner. Um, in other words, it started with an H. This person was recruited by the KGB in the early 1950s when this person was working in the Naval Attaché's office in Warsaw, came back to Britain and worked with the Admiralty and was taken over by the KGB in Britain. There was only one prime suspect, and that was Harry Houghton. And Harry Houghton because you asked the question, how did Harry Houghton get access to these documents? Well, the answer was he got this job at Portland when he came back from Warsaw. And what was not known at the time was that Ethel G was working with him in terms of getting this very important information out of Portland and to the KGB. OK, well, uh, Ethel G is a wonderful example of how the best way not to be caught is to be completely underestimated. So if one wished to draw up the stereotype of somebody who was completely underestimated in those far off days, she would be a spinster, a middle-aged spinster, speaking with a strong Dorset accent, who had no social life at all, uh, not merely living with her mother, but actually forced to share a bedroom with her 86-year-old mother. In other words, a unique spy in British history. So there we've got um, Houghton who is easy to underestimate because he wasn't very good. But he was in touch with somebody who was far brighter than him, but who didn't look far brighter than him. So uh, tell us um, how Ethel G managed to get the top secrets out and pass them on to Harry Houghton. Well, what's interesting is that and I found when I was researching this that you only really got to the truth or what you might think of as a simulacrum for the truth, if you like by putting together all the sources. And what Ethel G really did and how she did only really emerged when you look at the relatively few documents that have emerged from the KGB archives about Houghton and G. And this happened in the 1990s during that short period when the doors of the KGB archives just eased slightly apart for a few and years. And ever since you got them, they've closed them up again. They, they've, they've slammed them shut. And indeed, when I went to Moscow, one of my purposes was to confirm that indeed they had remained hermetically sealed. And uh, the gentleman I spoke to involved with the modern KGB uh, called the SBR said, yes, that's, that's it. 
Um, I don't know what the Russian for not a hope mate is, but that was in effect what he, what he conveyed to me. But in this short period in the 1990s, certain documents were allowed to be seen by carefully vetted former KGB people who in turn then did certain deals with Western spy writers to produce versions, I call them in the book, Russian versions of the truth about what went on. But what emerged from the, those documents um, published in the 1990s was that G um, had formed a relationship with Houghton. Houghton had got divorced in 1956-57 from his wife, who plays an important role in the story. Her name was, was Amy Houghton, otherwise known as Piggy. And at around that time, Houghton had formed a relationship with Ethel G. It was a rather strange one because um, in these times and in, in you know, the 2020s, um, you expect people to spend the night together and you know pass more time together. But by all accounts, it was pretty much platonic for most of the time. And we know this except, because... Except in a hotel which you have tracked down in London and is on your walking tour, which I shall refer to later. Well, the only time they did spend the night together as masquerading as man and wife was when they came up to London to pass the secrets which G extracted from Portland to give to their KGB controller, who was no less than Gordon Lonsdale. And, but most of the time, um, you would find that Houghton would basically meet Ethel G. They would go to local pubs. G would then return, as you said, to this rather sad bedroom, which she shared with her 86-year-old mum. The only other two people living in her house in Hambrough Road um, on the Isle of Portland were two other elderly relatives who were both well over 70. And we, we know that um, G didn't spend any time around at Houghton's because MI5 actually bugged the cottage of Harry Houghton. And also they recruited a neighbour um, who was called Cyril Bogust, who was a special constable, remarkable for the fact that he only had one working eye. Um, as a MI5 report said, he would have been a remarkable detective if he didn't have a, a one uh, glass eye. And Cyril Bogust um, agreed um, after being talked to by MI5 and Special Branch to keep a watch through his net curtains on Mr. Harry Houghton. And uh, this resulted okay, in... Trevor, well, um, it's not looking too promising from the point of MI5 thus far. Um, uh, there is an illegal operating in Britain after secrets, naval secrets, probably vastly more important, but I don't know that, than anything that um, uh, we have now. And there's a, a secure chain which uh, leads uh, from the UDE um, to um, uh, Conan Molodi. So how on earth, and obviously not with a poor man with uh, one eye listening through the wall, or uh, wherever he was, uh, he was listening in Dorset, how on earth does MI5 discover these three people? Well, it's a fascinating story. I mean, as far as I can work out, uh, the release of these MI5 files is the first time anywhere that a Western intelligence agency has agreed to and been able to release all the files that set out the story of a major early Cold War investigation right through from the, the first clue right the way through the investigation to the arrest to the trial and then to the negotiations in prison ending up in the spy swaps. So you have the whole narrative arc laid out and in short to answer your question um, it was a fascinating and exciting process which began uh, really uh, to gather pace, as I said, when the CIA spy sniper had provided this priceless um, bit of information to MI5. So MI5 immediately um, started to um, investigate and put surveillance onto Houghton. So they intercepted his mail. They also put bugs on his phone in his cottage um, just outside Portland. They started also when they got collected information from these sources to follow him. And the next crucial breakthrough was in July 1960 when they followed Harry Houghton, who came up to London with Ethel G and stayed in the Cumberland Hotel, which, as you say, is on the, the Portland Spiring Walking Tour. And um, they were followed out to the Old Vic Theatre near Waterloo Station. And there they were seen to meet a mysterious man. Um, who actually was Gordon Lonsdale, MI5 didn't 
realize this at the time they thought he was a polish intelligence officer but from the number plate of this car belonging to gordon lonsdale they worked out who it was then mi5 contacted the canadian um, intelligence service the royal canadian mounted police the mounties to find out more about this canadian businessman and they discovered some basic details about him being born in 1924 and so on and so forth the next breakthrough came a month later when Houghton, uh, on this occasion, alone came up to London and met Lonsdale outside the Old Vic Theatre, but on this occasion went to Steve's Cafe, which you can still see also. There's a sign when I went along to uh, the area around there uh, on the wall. And MI5, the watchers, took the very bold decision to actually follow Lonsdale and Houghton into this old style cafe. You can imagine the scene. The, evaporation dripping down the the windows you had the old chrome steamer for the pretty ghastly coffee that was very often served up at that time a lino on the floor and the uh, two spies went and sat facing each other and the mi5 people went and sat directly next to them so close indeed that the mi5 watcher said that he could feel houghton leaning back in his chair as he was talking to lonsdale opposite um, Houghton, by the way, being such a bad spy, wasn't, of course, lowering his voice. He was talking at his, his usual voluble pace. This conversation was overheard and said, let's carry on meeting first Saturday in the month. Uh, Houghton said, look, I've got, quote, plenty in my attache case for you tonight. And that was the next stage the, of the investigation. But then it all seemed to go strangely dead at the end of August 1960, when Lonsdale literally vanished. He just disappeared off the face of Britain and MI5 had no way of finding out and had no idea where he'd gone. And this caused a real problem for MI5. What should they do? Would he come back? The thing is, before Lonsdale had left, he'd gone to a bank branch in Great Portland Street of the Midland uh, Bank. And he was seen to go in with three items and come out with nothing. So MI5 knew that three items had been deposited in that safety deposit box. Okay, well, what let's move, they let's do move, next? Let's move to one of the many excitements in your book, <laughs> the point at which MI5 investigates the contents of his safety deposit uh, uh, box. Uh, so uh, take us through the contents and how they got access to them. Well, this was a big deal for the security service because clearly they were afraid of, of trying to look inside those safety deposit boxes and being disturbed in the middle of that by Lonsdale coming back. But also there was a tricky legal position because what right did they have to go in? What cover would they get? So in the end, um, MI5 went to no less a person than the permanent secretary of the treasury, who in turn went to the chairman of the Midland Bank, no less, to get approval for this operation, which the chairman gave on the basis that he wanted a full indemnity in case there was any comeback for the bank. So on the 12th of September, um, just after the bank had closed on a Friday afternoon, um, a couple of um, people from MI5 turned up and they went into the bank. They were expected because, of course, um, the bank branch had been tipped off and told to give full cooperation to MI5. And the three um, items, there was a deed box and two attache cases, were taken to the then top secret MI5 laboratory near St Paul's Cathedral. You can imagine the scene, the trestle tables, the strip lights, and the material was open. There was this wonderful man called Jagger, who was the sort of MI5 factotum, enormous guy, um, former soldier, over six foot, uh, enormous shoulders, used to wear an undertaker suit most of the time. But... Even though he was um, extremely big, he had incredibly delicate fingers. And it was he who basically got the, the feathered the locks undone for the attaché cases. And most of the material was, was interesting, but not at all of value to MI5 in making any decisions. It was various photographs. It was um, account books relating to this jukebox business that uh, Gordon Lonsdale was involved with. But um, they were really quite disappointed until... The man who was leading the MI5 investigation, fascinating counter-espionage investigator called Charles Elwell, spotted this, which was a Ronson cigarette lighter, very fashionable in 1960. And Elwell posed a question. He said, what on earth 
would Lonsdale do leaving his cigarette lighter in these items? They're obviously meant to be of value to him. So he said, can you put this item under the x-ray machine, which they did. And they saw under the x-ray machine that the interior was hollow. So they decided in turn to extract the top. And at the bottom of the Ronson one belonging to Lonsdale was a piece of baize, green baize with a screw. That in turn was taken out and inside was a veritable treasure trove of Russian spy paraphernalia. In particular, three one-time pads, as they're called. These are miniature encoding books. And so there was a eureka moment for MI5. They knew that this man, Lonsdale, was definitely a KGB spy and illegal. And they thought, right, we know who we're dealing with. And they could also, or rather GCHQ, could also, now having got hold of the Ronson lighter, crack their codes. Well, that's exactly right. And indeed, although it was known to some extent that, K, that GCHQ, that's Britain's code-breaking agency, for those who don't know, based in, in Cheltenham, had an absolutely crucial role to play in this investigation. This was confirmed by the interesting, relatively few, but nonetheless very interesting documents about GCHQ, which were released into um, the Kew National Archives. Okay, now um, uh, in this uh, extraordinary safety deposit box, there's also a photo, and a photo which I think is unique, <laughs> so far as we know, in any other safety deposit box investigated by MI5. Uh, so please fearlessly tell us what the photo was. Well, the photo showed this MI5 investigator I just talked about called Charles Elwell with a rather attractive young woman in a flat. And this was a man, bear in mind, who was investigating Gordon Lonsdale. And so at the time when the safety deposit box was opened, Elwell didn't see this photograph. But when all the material was being gone through with a fine tooth comb by the security service, someone spotted this photograph. And of course, it was taken immediately to the head of counter-espionage, Martin Furnival Jones, whose suspicions were aroused because he thought, my goodness, here is the man investigating this spy. And there's a photograph of him in the private property of this spy. Which is so is far, a, no, a unique moment in the history of British counter-espionage. Uh, so Elwell is called in and his wife is separately called in and separately questioned. And please tell us what happens next. Well, um, Elwell was understandably discountenanced by what was going on, but the, the explanation was quickly produced and was an innocent one for this photograph being found. This was that Elwell lived in Bayswater and he had a flat at the back of the house which he lived in, which he rented out. And on this occasion, he had rented it out to a young Canadian diplomat who had a party in this flat. And he invited to that party various people he knew from the School of Oriental and African Studies, SOAS in London. And, and one of these was no less a person than Gordon Lonsdale, who, of course, being a KGB agent, was very um, keen to use his camera on all occasions when he thought he might be meeting people who might possibly be potential people he could tap up as agents or indeed might indeed be working for British intelligence. So this photograph had been taken by Molody in Elwell's house. And once his explanation had been checked out by MI5, um, Elwell was immediately cleared. And in fact, in true MI5 fashion, Elwell, his wife, Furnival Jones, all went up to the MI5 canteen for a decent lunch. Right. Now, there are two people who are central to your story that uh, we've not mentioned uh, so far. And um, uh, like they have this in, in common with Molody, that they are celebrated in not simply the old Soviet Union, but the new Russia in a way uh, that um, uh, only one British spy has ever been celebrated in this country. That's Alan Turing. So they have postage stamps issued in their honor. The Russians have been much better at honoring their spies with postage stamps uh, than we have. Uh, so tell us the names of these two people whose real names you have discovered and whose postage stamps are available. Well, these two spies went by the name of Peter and Helen Kroger, and they form the final part of the five-piece jigsaw of the Portland spy ring. And they were living in the northwest London suburb of Ryslip, 
And the story of how they were found out by MI5 is indeed detailed fascinatingly in the um, KV files in the National Archives. And what happened was that our friend uh, Gordon Lonsdale returned on the 18th of October 1960 to Britain. Um, MI5's um, tension and uncertainty obviously dissipated at that moment. And they started following Lonsdale. And they did this by having a tag team of people who would follow his movements. And they spotted he was going further and further out into northwest London most nights. And they slowly tracked him out to Ryslip. And um, at the very end of October, they followed him from Ryslip Manor Station to a, a little passageway which led into a road called Cranley Drive. And the watchers were afraid of following him in case these highly uh, the highly trained KGB illegal, as they knew him to be at the time, was waiting at the end of the passageway. So they knew that Lonsdale was going somewhere in that area to see someone. So they set up what they called um, an observation post, an OP. And they set this up in a house that was in Cranley Drive, one Courtfield Gardens, where a couple called the Searchers lived, Bill and Ruth Search. He was an aeronautical engineer. And MI5 persuaded them to set up this OP in their daughter's bedroom. Their daughter was called Gay Search. And they started watching from there. And then on the 5th of November, they had no idea really where Molody had gone. One of these MI5 watchers was down in the bow window um, of, of um, one Portfield Gardens when out of the cottage opposite emerged suddenly Gordon Lonsdale and the bungalow he'd emerged from was 45 Cranley Drive in Ryslip and that was lived in by this man Peter Kroger who pretended to be an antiquarian bookseller and his wife Helen and immediately MI5 and Elwell thought that it was likely that they were um, Lonsdale's communications specialists uh, communicating with Moscow Centre that was the name given to uh, the KGB headquarters based at Lubyanka at that time. Uh, um, they might be using either radio um, methods of communication. We can talk about that a bit later if, if people are interested. Or by means of micro dots. These are really, really absolutely microscopic photographs of secret documents. They, you know, the documents reduced from this size right down to an absolute tiny spot the size of a, of a um, full stop. Um, obviously useful for um, our friend Peter Kroger because he could you know, replace the real full stop in an antiquarian book with a micro dot or by live or dead drops. So that was their role, that was their name. But indeed, their real identity only emerged after they were arrested on the 7th of January. And MI5 discovered that in fact they'd not caught two sprats in their net, but two rather large and juicy mackerel. Because okay, they're they're, before uh, telling us the identity of the of the mackerel, tell us how the radio was discovered. Well, the radio was only discovered after the arrests. Um, the arrest took place on the 7th of January and they were precipitated by a move by the CIA agent we talked about earlier called Sniper. And on the 4th of January, he sent this emergency message to the CIA in Berlin to their operating base and said, look, I'm going to defect tomorrow. So immediately alarm bells rang in Washington, DC, but also in London, because the CIA had a very close relationship with British intelligence. And immediately they informed British intelligence and MI5 of this impending defection. And it didn't take too much spy tradecraft, tri uh, tradecraft to realize that this defection threatened um, the whole MI5 operation involving the Portland spy ring, because there was a risk that if the spies were not arrested, um, when he defected, or she, because they didn't know what the identity of Sniper at the time, the KGB would immediately go over the whole trail of the intelligence to which Sniper had access, and that this could mean that the KGB would alert the three KGB spies operating in the UK, Common Molody, and Peter and Helen Kroger, as they were known at the time, and that they would just flit and disappear. They would be um, exfiltrated by the KGB. So um, that was, you know, what, what led to that. They're, arrest they're arrested, uh, they're taken to trial, they're found guilty. And the um, story doesn't end there. 
So um, uh, tell us, first of all, uh, what happened to them after they were arrested. And then secondly, tell us what happened to them after they were found guilty. Yeah, uh, I also tell um, people how the radio was found. In, in summary, um, absolutely fascinating. I said it's like a, one of those classic Matryoshka Russian dolls that you open up and there's another yeah. one within another one. Anyway, what happened here was that after they were arrested, the Krogers refused to give their fingerprints. So a court order was um, given and their fingerprints were taken against their will. And these fingerprints were then taken back to New Scotland Yard. And 48 or so hours later, there was another eureka moment because there was an exact match between the fingerprints of the Krogers and those which had been circulated by the FBI two years before of two spies they had been basically hunting since 1953 called Morris and Lona Cohen. And these spies were suspected, I mean, the full details weren't known by the FBI at the time, of being really, really significant, important KGB undercover illegal spies. And as I said, they've been hunting them in the first instance since 1953, but with greater energy from 1957. So they were arrested. Um, when MI5 then started looking around and taking apart their bungalow, it took several days for them to find almost everything, which was of importance. But in fact, it took between seven and 10 days for MI5 to go down into the half cellar of 45 Cranley Drive and find hidden away in a specially contrived um, hiding place that had been made of concrete down in the cellar, this amazing flash transmission radio, which was a state-of-the-art KGB method of transmitting uh, material. What it could do was compress what would normally be a 15 or 20 minute message in Morse code down to a bat squeak of radio transmission lasting perhaps 10 to 15 seconds. So we then have the trial. The five people were all found guilty. The judge, uh, who was no less than the Lord Chief Justice of England, Hubert Parker, took no sympathy and there were gasps of astonishment around the court when he gave um, Gordon Lonsdale, because he was still only known as Gordon Lonsdale, 25 years in jail. 20 years each were given to the Krogers, who were prosecuted, by the way, in their fake names, not their real names. There was concern, I think, about prejudice to the jury if um, they were prosecuted in, in their real names of Morris and Lona Cohen. And 15 years each to Ethel G. and to Harry Houghton. They were sent to jail. And then another episode in this amazing story starts to take place then. OK, well, tell us this. I mean, the, so there's Elwell. Career is unique in all kinds of um, ways, and you, you've spoken to his family. First of all, the finding of the suspicious photo. But then he goes along to Morody in jail, and they seem to get on quite well. And he takes, he buys some strawberries when it's summer and other fruit at other times, takes them along, and they quite enjoy getting on with each other. So tell us about these extraordinary interrogations, because you actually read the transcripts. Well, I, I did, and they really just read like the script of a radio play. On one occasion, and it wasn't just um, uh, Molody who he went to go and see, um, but also I went, well, I went to go and see the, uh, the Coens. Remember, this is Peter and Helen Kroger, um, hoping uh, in total vain, as it turned out, um, to persuade them to cooperate. And on one occasion, he actually brought a secret tape recorder hidden in his briefcase to record one of the conversations he had both with Lonsdale, uh, real name Molody, and the Krogers. So you can actually read this, and it reads, I said, like a radio play. And Elwell was, I think, very sympathetic in some ways to, and had great respect for Lonsdale, uh, Molody because he was a professional intelligence officer, obviously highly intelligent, cultivated, clever and courageous. And Elwell had respect for people like that. He, on the other hand, had no respect for Harry Houghton or Ethel G, who he saw this, um, their motivation as being solely money, and he was right in that. And he also had very little or no respect for the Krogers, who he saw as from his point of view, obsessive, cranky communists who had betrayed their country, the United States of America, and 
who saw no value in, in America and, and its democracy. So he had quite strong views on, on, on these points. So I've, I've had the good fortune of putting all kinds of questions to you um, uh, now. I just want to comment uh, that you may or may not have time to say a bit further about. I mean, particularly thanks to your book, these three people, Morlody and the Coens, also known as the, the Krogers, who have postage stamps, have had postage stamps for quite some time in their honor, and who Putin, uh, so far as Morlody is concerned, has described as the hero of Russia. These are well-known names. Charles Elwell, the man who caught them and was, of course, brighter than any of them, he, until you have started looking at his record and talking to his family, he's just about unknown. And at that point, it's um, a time for other people um, to have a chance to put questions to you. And I will come in uh, at the end just to remind people about the walking tour, which they can follow your talk up with. Well, thanks very much. I'll quickly try and access the, the questions. Um, the first question is, did the UK or USA operate did doubles in the USSR or other Eastern Bloc countries? The answer to that is no, as far as we know. Illegals were very much a speciality of the KGB um, while it was doing And what's important to remember is that the modern Russian Foreign Intelligence Service operates them today as well. The techniques have not really changed. There are other foreign intelligence agencies that do also operate um, illegals, Chinese, for example, known that the Israelis have done. I gather from a, a source in America that the CIA did toy with trying to have some uh, illegals operating against Al Qaeda, but it just wasn't regarded as being likely as, as likely to work. What the Western intelligence agencies tend to do is use what are known as non-official covers, knocks. In other words, they might try and talk to businessmen or students or others and see if they might be willing to um, provide intelligence. Obviously, it's a very, very difficult tightrope to walk because if people do agree to that, then it can put those people in, in quite severe danger. The next question is from a lady or, or a gentleman saying, is there anything to stop dead doubles today? Does the fact that birth and deaths are managed locally still allow it to happen? Well, as I said, it is possible in theory for dead doubles still to be created, but obviously in this digital age, it's much, much tougher to create a false legend. I mean, it was known by the KGB at the time that once you had a Western intelligence agency focusing all its attentions on trying to find out um, the real life of a dead double, that dead double would be found out pretty quickly. And you can see this in, in the Russian sources. So as I said today, with, with digital information exchange being passed, uh, there's obviously extremely good cooperation between the, the Western Five Eyes intelligence agencies, as they're known. It'd be really, really hard to carry that out. But it would still, in theory, be possible. The next question is from a gentleman who asks the very interesting question. Um, how accurate was the 1964 Ring of Spies film with Bernard Lee playing Harry Houghton? Was it a good enough representation of the events surrounding the Portland spy ring? Well, the answer was that it wasn't particularly accurate. It was made very soon after the uh, events of, of the trial, and a number of things were just completely secret, like, for example, the important role of Sniper, the CIA agent, there's not a reference to that at all. Um, Bernard Lee, by the way, this is a small footnote, is interesting because he played, I think as far as I'm aware, the only baddie, spy baddie, in any spy film he appeared in because, of course, he's best known as M in all the early James Bond films. So if you take M as the equivalent of the head of MI5C, you can see he was the very pinnacle of the British spy establishment. But here he was in Ring of Spies playing this um, traitor, um, Harry Houghton. In other respects, however, I think the, the film is really, really interesting and good. I think in particular the scene where um, the director recreated the use of the flash transmission radio equipment 
is, is really, really good. And also the making of micro dots. Um, uh, I think those features of the film are really worth um, seeing. And as a period piece, it's just fascinating. Anyone who's interested in the atmosphere of Cold War paranoia, which was um, active at the time in Britain, could do a lot worse than watch that film. The next story is from a gentleman. He says, family stories claim that my relatives had links with the Houghtons in Lincoln before World War One. His father may have been an engineer and worked with my relatives. Have you any other information about Houghton's family in Lincoln? Well, the answer is that there is material in the archives, um, these KV files about the relationship that Houghton had with his family. For example, his father lived in Lincoln and there is one surveillance report which says that Houghton was going to be followed um, to London because he, Harry Houghton, was on his way to Lincoln to see his father. And there are other references um, on and off in the files to um, Harry Houghton's family and the links in Lincoln because, of course, I think he was born there in 1905, Harry Houghton's links with Lincoln. Final question from a gentleman asking, he says a comment first and then a question. First, it's difficult to agree with the definition legendary in relation to Molody, because he says he rather quickly failed in his mission and was arrested. Um, and this suggested that the agent was rather unprofessional. Um, and he points out quite rightly, there were other examples of illegals who, who lasted um, for a lot longer. So the question really is, is Molody uh, really an intelligence hero, um, which the KGB wishes to seek him? I think all these things about definitions uh, depend on the criteria that you use. He's certainly regarded as um, a legend um, by the KGB and by Putin. I carefully in my book did not describe him uh, as a legend. Um, if you read my summary of him, I, I say he was certainly successful in the tasks that he was given in that he uh, managed to come to the UK and was undetected from 19. 55 until uh, 1960 and he was in fact bet uh, betrayed by two of the other spies uh, Houghton and G who led the MI5 watchers to him and as I said earlier once um, MI5 as the KGB knew were going to focus their forensic detail um, and attention on to um, this man Gordon Lonsdale they would soon find out um, that he was not a Canadian businessman, but someone else. It took a considerable period of sleuthing by MI5 after the trial to identify him as Molody. But he may not be a legend by definition and comparison with other illegals, but he was certainly a very, very successful um, illegal um, for quite a long period. Uh, my second question is, is why the KGB? He says that the collection of military secrets is the job of the GRU Soviet and now Russian military intelligence, um, which has been and probably remains one of the best intelligence services in the world. So why was the task given to the KGB rather than the GRU? And could it be the case that in parallel to the KGB network, there has perhaps been an undiscovered and perhaps more successful GRU network there? Well, it would be fascinating to know the answer to that question. Um, one of the things that I feel um, emerges from my book and as a result of my research was that the network of the Portland spy ring which Mollody rang was wider than just Houghton and G. Um, the official Soviet sources suggested there was at least one agent called Agent K and there were almost certainly a, a successful penetration of Porton Down, the chemical and biological weapons uh, Institute, uh, which Britain had uh, and has still at Porton Down. Um, in addition, there was also, um, as has been well known and was revealed by Chris um, in the Matrokin archive, um, the, the short-lived control of Melita Norwood by Conan Molody. So when the archives are open, hopefully we may find out more about um, other GRU spies. Um, I think I've answered all the questions. Hopefully, and um, we have a minute or two for Chris to 
possibly make some closing remarks. Well, um, uh, the two closing remarks um, are, are, first of all, I mean, very good point that was, was made, and uh, you had some very interesting things to say about it, which is uh, how good were they? Well, I think if one compares past and present, I mean, it took an extraordinarily intricate and well-conducted inquiry to discover Molody and the, the, the two Cohens. Now, what happened with um, in Salisbury was the two presumed and um, presumed on good uh, evidence uh, assassins, unsuccessful assassins. They did assassinate somebody, but it wasn't the person they intended. Bashirov and Petrov, and people just working, not with access to secret material, but just looking on the internet for people in the Soviet Union as was. Russia is now with lots of motoring offenses in a Mercedes. Now they got on <laughs> to the real names, Shepiga and Mishkin, and what's only got to look at the CCTV. And these two people are walking along together, um, having a jolly good time, just breaking every basic uh, every basic rule in the book. So however, however good or bad um, uh, Molody was, he was, it seems to be, very considerably better uh, than the ones we've had a recent um, uh, experience of, and also considerably less homicidal. Now, the final thing to mention about your book, Trevor, is that it is unique, and this is something I do intend to imitate in my next book, and as you know, imitation is the serious, the most uh, serious form of, of flattery. There is a walking tour. It's near the beginning, and it gives shows you um, GCHQ, London office, quite close to MI6 HQ, um, uh, MI6 headquarters, quite close to MI5, and it shows you um, Houghton's usual London address, in other words, Cumberland Hotel, and the various addresses um, uh, of, uh, of, of, of Lonsdale. So this is not merely a book to read and to purchase, but also to take with you and have the first spy tour in London connected with Mullady and the Coens in the history of London walking tours. Um, so we all look forward to that as well as to your next book, Trevor. But in the meantime, buying many copies of your this book seems This talk is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence. Visit our website to discover more talks and follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram for news and updates from the National Archives.